As I begin this week's broadcast, I am met with great sorrow. A cerebral hemorrhage has suddenly taken the life of my wife, Dawn. Tomorrow, we would have celebrated 19 years of marriage. Words are inadequate for me to express what is happening to me right now. I know so many have struggled too. We suffer in this world. In coming days and coming broadcasts, you will experience my journey through this deep pain. I expect that may not be very easy. After all, who among us wants to go through grief? But I promise to do my best to show you not only through my words, but through my life, the hope we have in God. I spoke last week about my kids. I said this, there are 11 of them. I have raised five of them. Yes, the McGathy household is a complex one, just like many of yours. And each of my kids are precious and loved, and I am so very proud of all of them. They are all welcomed and loved around my table. Now most of them are on their way. COVID-19 is preventing some from travel. The church family, the community are supportive and wonderful. I will need you to get through. Dawn was a very private person and in the end did not embrace the traditional role of a minister's wife in a small town in a southern church. Her love for me and for God was deeply felt, though. And I know she helped me to be a more compassionate and loving individual. So even if you did not know her as closely as you would have liked to, you did benefit from the grace she brought to my life. I suppose in coming days I will memorialize her before you, just because we don't have funerals in our tradition, traditional manner, I still think we need to express our thanksgiving over the ones who have gone before us. So please understand my need, and perhaps yours as well, that I do this. Today's broadcast was nearly ready when the tragic came in like a flood. I will share what I had prepared for you today. This message is pre-recorded because I do not think I can do a live broadcast. But eventually I shall return to that. I will do my best to see the people of faith through this time of darkness and death our entire nation suffers. This Sunday, like every Sunday, this broadcast is sponsored by First Baptist Church of Madison, North Carolina. Even if you are not a Baptist, please continue to listen because we are all God's children and we all need each other and we all can help one another. We are knit together in two ways. First, we all need God. All of us. None of us has everything together and at times we feel like we have nothing together. We admit our need of a divine source to touch us with grace. Secondly, and this is just as important, we believe that God loves us and is going to show us the way. We do not always know the way, but because we believe God loves us, we also believe he will speak 
to us if we will listen. One way he will do that is through a collection of ancient books compiled in what is called the Bible. Now, the Bible, you should know, is a human book. It did not come down magically from heaven, all intact. Had God wanted that kind of experience for us, he could have given it to us, but no, he chose it a different way. He spoke through his spirit, through people, through their experiences and through their understandings of the world. I understand that. And because I understand that and have studied that and tried to share that with people, I want to share with you what God has given to me. So thanks for joining me on this journey as we encounter the living God through the living and lively book called the Bible. Many of you are familiar with the Bible. Still others have never read the Bible. Maybe you have even resented the way some people have used the Bible to pound you over the head or to hurt you in some way. Some are even confused and others are hurt by it, but still others are curious. What was it all about? This is for all of you, no matter who you are. I invite you to open your hearts and minds as you learn along with us each week how this ancient collection of writings by human beings who encountered God will help you today. In other words, this is a connection with God. We begin with the understanding that God loves everyone, everywhere, and that we are all God's children. What's more, God wants to know you. So thank you for welcoming me, a broken-hearted preacher, to share with you the next hour of your time. I pray it will be an hour well spent, and at the end of our time together, you will be inspired because God has touched your heart. I'm Dr. Chuck McGathy. I'm a minister for a wonderful group of people who love Christ, called First Baptist Church of Madison. First Baptist Church of Madison is a ministry committed to reaching out in this inclusive way. Today, you are one of us. You are one of me. You are part of my heart. We are connected. We are a congregation. And as a congregation in this horrible time that our nation is undergoing right now, in this time, I ask you to please stay safe, keep others safe. That is your witness to Christ. And we welcome all people who are seeking God in their own way. This is our way to help support and to love you. I'd like to begin today by sharing our wonderful choir, led by Mrs. Jane Scruggs. And I picked out this song from the archives, but I think to me it is special this day. All the way my Savior leads.
You can learn more about this faith community, a community into which you are invited and loved by going to our website. Now this is all spelled out, www.firstbaptistchurchofmadison.org. There you will find out how to contact us, you can also listen to this broadcast again by clicking the link to the podcast, Nothing But Grace. Remember, we love you 
and we are here for you and ready to help support you as you walk through this life's journey. This week is on the subject of God's justice and the vision we all need for justice. What I am about to share with you is important. Please consider carefully my words. Things are not always as they appear. The simple truth has challenged, been re uh, repeatedly challenged within our culture. There is a mistaken idea out there, an idea I have even heard expressed by members of the clergy who ought to know better, that what matters is not facts, but what people think is true in spite of the facts. I have seen more than one talking head on television and heard radio talk show hosts declare with imperious authority that perception is reality. Perception is reality has been used as a common platitude for some time now. The more it is said, the more it is accepted as indisputable truth. But it is not the truth. The truth is that things are not always as they appear, and our first interpretations might be quite wrong. Nevertheless, those in politics, mass media, and even religious leaders too frequently adopt, follow, and spread the perception is reality philosophy. In fact, some even go so far as to invent the perception they want to become the reality. Yellow journalism is nothing new in America. Historians have long noted the efforts of newspaper giant William Randolph Hearst to inflame the passions that led our nation into a war based upon a perception that was not a reality. In 1898, the Spanish were blamed for the sinking of the battleship Maine in Havana Harbor. Yet the cause of the devastating explosion was unknown to the Navy and has since been proven to have been an accident. The warship sank due to a coal dust explosion in a boiler room. Now you would think after such historic tragedies like the Spanish-American War, we would be fairly suspicious of the perception is reality crowd, but alas, we are not. One reason is because we clamor for explanations that confirm our prejudices. Conspiracy theories provide a strange comfort for fearful individuals who cannot cope with a complex world. This, in turn, makes people susceptible to authoritarianism. Karen Steiner noted this when she said, Authoritarianism appeals simply to people who cannot tolerate complexity. Thus, the idea of my impressions of the truth must, in fact, be the truth, continue to plague not only society, but even the Church of Jesus Christ, the church founded by the very one who proclaimed, I am the truth. Truth matters. Truth should matter to every believer in Christ, but does it? There are just too many examples I could cite where perception is reality has been embraced by more readily than the words of Jesus who said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Through the years I have preached, I have found it frustratingly difficult to communicate this with some of my dear Christian friends. I have even been told by a sincere, though I am sure deeply misinformed individual, that I had turned my back on America. 
A strange comment concerning the fact that I served in the uniform of this nation for 23 years and have five sons who have also served with two presently on active duty in the Navy and Marine Corps. So what I share comes not only from my Christian perspective, but also from my patriotic commitment. A clear illustration of this principle has been an emerging story uh, that it took place several years ago out of New York City. I came across this story about a decade ago as I was completing teaching on the study, Islam toward a better understanding of our religious neighbors. The matter came to my attention in the form of a question. Did you hear that the Muslims are building a mosque at Ground Zero where the Twin Towers fell after the devastating attacks by Islamic extremists in September 2001? After questioning the source of such a report, I decided to find out for myself what all of the hullabaloo was about. What I discovered verified the perception is reality crowd is alive and well and further demonstrated that yellow journalism is not dead. The facts, though, revealed a vastly different story. The first thing I learned was that an Islamic community center was planned for construction, but not at ground zero. It was two blocks away. Appeals to governmental officials to prohibit the construction were unsuccessful. Still, the heat was rising from the grassroots. After learning such just that much, I responded to the matter in an email to a concerned friend, Please listen thoughtfully to part of what I wrote. This is America. I want it to remain America. In the America I know and love, we have religious liberty. That means the government is not to judge the worthiness of a faith or to show favor to a particular faith. So would there have been an outcry if a Baptist church had decided to build its worship center there? Of course not. However, once upon a time, in this country, such was not the case. In its early history, the American colonies considered Baptist strange, cult-like, and unwanted. These colonies restricted the rights of Baptists, including the construction of their houses of worship. When the Constitution was drafted, it was Baptist leaders who ensured that it would include clauses that guaranteed the free exercise of religion. These provisions, described by Jefferson as a separation of church and state, have served us well as a democratic republic. It is part of the genius of the American experiment. And I concluded my email this way. Now those who desire that the government act to enforce a selective restriction of religion are not acting in accordance with the framers of the Constitution, nor in agreement with the arguments of the early Baptist. As an American and a Baptist Christian, I do not want the government to determine which religion is acceptable. I cannot tell whether my words had any persuasive impact upon my frightened friend, I do know, however, the source of fear. Media mogul Rupert Murdoch's New York Post had been running a column decrying the proposed construction. The columnist got what he desired, public outrage over a community center he described as a mosque at ground zero. As a result, 500 protesters gathered to demonstrate their opposition when they spotted two dark-skinned men speaking Arabic near the crowd. Part of the group surrounded the pair, shouting racial and religious slurs and told them to get out, go home. 
Inevitably, the crowd descended into greater ugliness, compelling the New York City police to step in and pull the men out for their safety. Then one of the men, half fearful, half startled, shouted with an Egyptian accent, I'm a Christian. Turns out, both of them were. Both men were immigrants to America where they work in California Christian television. They were, in fact, Egyptian Coptic Christians. They had flown nine hours from California to join the protest against the community center. You see, the facts matter. Things are not always as they may appear. As Christians, we ought to know this better than anybody because our Lord demonstrated and taught that perception is not necessarily reality. One clear instance of that is found in today's scripture from Luke 7, verses 36 through 50. Listen as I read. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this was, who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering him said, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and another 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from time to time I came in. She has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. It was perceptions that mattered to Simon. In fact, the entire evening affair was based upon perceptions, their perceptions. Through their prejudiced observation of this young preacher from Nazareth, Simon and his fellow Pharisees hoped to discern the truth, the reality. They were anxious to know if Jesus was indeed a prophet. So they invited him to dine with them. It was a great honor to sit down with the prominent and righteous people. Surely they assumed Jesus would be on his best behavior. He would endeavor to impress his self-appointed judges, or so they thought. The dinner party was organized by Simon, who was a Pharisee. Lest we allow our misperceptions to fool us, there are a few things we should know about those who belong to the party of the Pharisees. It is tempting for us to become intellectually lazy regarding them and then roll them up in a big ball. So let's bear in mind a few important facts that will help us understand the reality that goes beyond our initial perceptions. First, please realize the Pharisees were the religious superstars of their day. They worked hard at being faithful. In fact, they worked harder than everyone else to get their religion right. 
They genuinely cared about being right before God. In so doing, they questioned everything that challenged their established order of religious work. They were not quite the villains most of us imagine. For instance, it was the Pharisees who warned Jesus that Herod was planning to kill him. We also see in John's gospel at least one Pharisee who secretly approaches Jesus at night in a garden to learn how he can be born again. And we must remember, according to Luke, it was Jerusalem's religious leaders associated with the temple and not the Pharisees who conspired to execute Jesus. Now, while none of this makes the Pharisees the heroes of the gospel, it does put a more human face on them. So human, in fact, that we might even see a little Pharisee in ourselves. Aren't we often the ones in our society who are seeking to do right and practice our religion with integrity? So, of course, we too can get just as wrapped around the axle as did the Pharisees. So this was more than a dinner It was also a job interview, a test of sorts to try and see if this Nazarene, this country bumpkin was the up, was up to the task. Who knows, perhaps the Pharisees came prepared with a checkoff list of impressive questions, the questions to which only the Messiah would know. They might start with a bit of Bible history, then move into current affairs and finally finish up exploring his ideas on how to deal with the fractures in Jewish society. Of particular concern was how to overwhelm the Roman nightmare that defined their land. Then they could have asked the questions of cultural protocol. This occurred before anyone was seated. Certainly they would not seat Jesus in the place of prominence. Simon should go there, he would be seated at the head of the U-shaped table. Jesus would be placed at the far end, the least prominent place. No doubt the questions for this so-called prophet had been submitted in advance to Simon. He would interrogate Jesus and he would speak in behalf of the other Pharisees when a determination about Jesus had been made. Now this was an interesting fact about this dinner party that will help make this scripture make sense. The food and conversation was restricted to only those seated at the U-shaped table. Another interesting feature of the dinner was that non-eating, non-speaking audience could also attend. They stood quietly around the room edges in the shadows to observe the party and perhaps learn from the conversations that ensued. It was what people did in those days before the age of books, radio, and television. So this was, in fact, a dinner that was also a show. Behind Jesus stood one particular woman. Surely if she remained in the shadows, the evening would have gone very differently. But she didn't remain hidden. She came out, and as she did, she approached Jesus. Jesus' feet to be more accurate. She was described as a woman of the city, and we in our cultural experience understand that to mean she was a prostitute. But that is our perception. The reality is, this expression does not mean she was a streetwalker. It simply indicates that she was someone who had had some great problems, a common run-of-the-mill sinner, or as St. Augustine has phrased it, a famous sinner. Her problems may have involved prostitution or maybe being forced into serial marriage as a way of supporting herself, or maybe she was addicted to substances, or maybe she had some personal demon, what we would call mental illness. Whatever her problem was, we can quickly see that all of those at the party were aware that she was a problem. 
Note that I did not say she had a problem, but she was a problem. Now here she goes. The party's about to be disrupted. She takes an expensive flask of perfume and begins to massage it on Jesus' feet. Then she washes those same feet with her tears that flowed from whatever heartbreak she felt. Finally, she dries his feet with her own hair. That's embarrassing. It got everyone's immediate attention. It was also slightly erotic, lending to a measure of credence the speculation that this woman had entertained men sometime in her past. Yet something was different, something that Jesus saw and everyone else missed. Was perception the reality? Ah, but they thought they knew what was going on. That was their perception. Simon hissed under his breath, if this man were a prophet, he would have known what sort of woman was touching him, for she is a sinner. Yes, Simon and his Pharisee friends knew all about her. I wonder how. After that dinner party was changed, no need for the questions prepared in advance. The matter was as good as settled. Their perception was their reality. Jesus was a fraud. They must have muttered this among themselves. Jesus heard them and could see what was going on. Jesus does not give up on them, though. Perhaps if they thought about it differently, they might understand. And so he addressed the head of the table with a remarkably short but effective parable. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? How would you have answered Jesus? Simon has undoubtedly answered for all of us when he confesses that the person who is forgiven more loves more. Finally, we learned the truth about the woman. She had been forgiven by Jesus. She felt immense relief from his grace that her deepest emotions and affection for Jesus tumbled out at the dinner party. She had been saved and could not contain her devotion for her new master. Jesus, it was plain to see, had not been treated properly by Simon, but she would. That was the reality. Then Jesus asked Simon and everyone who would ever read these words in ages to come, do you see this woman? One commentator put it far better than me when he wrote, Simon does not answer the question, but an honest answer would be no. Simon sees the reputation that precedes her. He sees unseemly behavior. He sees the interruption of his carefully planned evening. He sees the failure of the young prophet to respond appropriately. He sees many things, but he does not see the woman. He does not see her as a human being created in God's image, and he does not see that she has changed. This account from this dinner party ought to challenge us as a truthful people, if we are going to be honest, we will have to admit that we can easily relate with Simon. We too are cynical of those who claim redemption, and we are suspicious that it isn't real. We want others to experience our faith, but we want them to experience it just like we have. We say, yes, there is room at our party if you earn your way to the table and play according to our rules. But here is the reality. God is doing something in the lives of countless people. We don't see it. We don't understand it. But he is moving in them nevertheless. And so we have to decide if we have room in our hearts to provide a place for them. 
We have to decide. We have to remember how God accepts us with all our flaws. We have to see ourselves with a new clarity. Ralph Waldo Emerson once said, The less a man thinks or knows about his virtue, the better we like him. But I think St. Augustine put it best when he said, He that thinks he lives without sin does not avoid sin, but rather excludes all pardon. And therefore I dare assert it is good that the proud should fall into some broad and disgraceful sin. Maybe it is only then that we can truly remember how much we are forgiven and how deep is the reservoir of God's grace. Maybe then we will know how to act as agents of God's love. In her book, Out of the Salt Shaker, Rebecca Pippert tells about a college student whose name was Bill. Bill wasn't what you would call a snappy dresser. In fact, Bill didn't wear shoes, summer or winter, rain, sleet or snow. Bill always went barefoot. So as it so happened, there was an attractive church across the street from the campus, and Bill decided to go and worship there. By coincidence, that congregation, mostly comprised of well-dressed, middle-class people, had decided to reach out to the students across the street. They had just been discussing that when Bill walked through the door, dressed in his jeans and t-shirt and barefoot, of course. Bill stood out like a sore thumb. He walked down the aisle looking for a seat, but the pews were full. That wasn't a problem for Bill, who simply sat down on the carpet at the front of the church. At that moment, Bill became the center of attention for most of the people in that congregation. Then an elderly man got up from his pew, and he walked down the aisle toward Bill. Slowly, deliberately, the old man made his way down the aisle, and people tensed. Was he going to make a scene? Was he going to demand that Bill move? Was he going to even ask Bill to leave? But when the man reached Bill, he simply lowered himself with difficulty, mind you, and took a seat on the carpet next to Bill. That's where the two of them sat and worshipped God that morning. Rebecca said in conclusion, I was told there was not a dry eye in the congregation. The coming days, the post-pandemic church will have more and more opportunities to walk to the front and sit with barefoot visitors. How we welcome them will tell the world how we understand the meaning of Jesus' words. I pray that when these moments come, we will not fail the test. Let us pray. Lord, give us your heart to see people as you see them. Forgive us for trusting our misperceptions and failing to see others through your eyes of love. Change us from judges to restorers. Help us remember how great a debt you have paid in our behalf. Teach us how much you love those burdened with the chains of their sin. Use us to bring them to your table and cause us to welcome them as brothers and sisters. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now as we begin our time of Bible study this morning. Listen as I read from the Bible called The Message. This section could be subtitled God's Message of Hope for His People. Now listen as I read from Isaiah 56 verses 1 through 8. God's Message. Guard my common good. Do what's right and do it the right way. For salvation is just around the corner. My setting things right is about to go into action. How blessed are you who enter into these things, you men and women who embrace them. 
who keep Sabbath and don't defile it, who watch your step and don't do anything evil. Make sure no outsider who now follows God ever has an occasion to say, God put me in second class. I don't really belong. And make sure no physically mutilated person is ever made to think, I'm damaged goods. I don't really belong. For God says to the mutilated who keep my Sabbaths and choose what delights me and keep a firm grip on my covenant, I'll provide them an honored place in my family and within my city, even more honored than that of sons and daughters. I'll confer permanent honors on them that will never be revoked. And as for the outsiders who now follow me, working for me, loving my name, who wanted to be my servants, who keep Sabbath and don't defile it, holding fast to my covenant, I'll bring them to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. They'll be welcome to worship the same as the insiders, to bring burnt offerings and sacrifices to my altar. Oh yes, my house of worship will be known as a house of prayer for all people. The decree of the master, God himself, who gathers in the exiles of Israel, I will gather others also, gather them in with those already gathered. The passage of focus today is from the theme of this passage. Here again, verse 1, rendered in the New Revised Standard Version. Thus says the Lord, maintain justice and do what is right, for soon my salvation will come and my deliverance be revealed. When Dr. Tony Cartledge wrote this study months ago, I'm fairly sure he did not anticipate that in August we would be in the situation we are now in. Nevertheless, his words have proven to be prophetic and therefore worthy of our thoughtful attention. He observed the following. The enforced isolation during the, COVID, the height of the COVID-19 pandemic felt something like exile. We could no longer gather for worship or go about our lives as we are accustomed. We longed for restrictions to end so life could get back to normal. But did it? Perhaps we'll never know the same normal again. We may never hug as freely or sit as closely as we once did. Some jobs lost during the pandemic may not come back. Others may see changes in their previous workplace culture. Debts that piled up while millions of people were out of work don't magically disappear. Unemployment checks and government stimulus funds can only go so far for those who got them. Life for many may still have the taste of exile. It is apparent from his introduction that Dr. Cartledge believed when he wrote those words that the COVID-19 pandemic would be subsided by the time we came upon this lesson. I did too. So did many. The harsh reality is that the pandemic is not over. The fact remains that we have not yet seen the height of the COVID-19 pandemic. There is more difficulty to come. By any realistic measure, we are facing a health, economic, and societal crisis that will be our reality for longer than we first imagined. So what then does God have to say to us in a time such as this? The words spoken through Isaiah are just as important today as they were in the 5th century before the birth of Jesus. These words of Isaiah were spoken during a time of national crisis. They were embedded in the soul of Israel. It is apparent that Jesus read Isaiah very closely. In fact, it is equally obvious that our Lord took Isaiah's side in a great biblical debate, a debate that happens once the Jews returned from their exile to their homeland. One of the keys to understanding the revelation of the Bible is to grasp that within its pages, there is the opportunity 
for the reader to engage in midrash. Midrash may be a term that is unfamiliar. Midrash is a Hebrew word that means to interpret. The Bible thoughtfully engaged by the reader will open up the prayerful and sincere wrestling with the text in an effort to understand its meaning and application. One of the reasons why I recommended to everyone that they obtain a free copy of the Nurturing Faith Bible Study we offer is because Dr. Cartledge understands this principle and speaks to it. I can give no greater example of why I advocate this form of learning God's Word as revealed in the Bible more than this lesson today. Dr. Cartledge acknowledges that there is a biblical debate that grows among God's people following their return to Jerusalem. Listen carefully as Dr. Cartledge explains the situation and how this passage of Scripture in Isaiah argues for a different course. He first describes the ground for a protectionist Israel and Jerusalem when he writes, Happy hopes soon ran aground on the shores of a city that was largely in ruins and home to an assortment of squatters. Life was hard and prospects were uncertain. Religious leaders like Ezra and Nehemiah, along with the Zadokite priesthood, preached an exclusionary doctrine that called for the returnees to remain wholly separate from Jews who had remained behind, as well as foreigners who had moved in. List of former exiles, warnings against intermarriage, and the rejection of help from local people made it clear that purity and pedigree were at the top of the heap for the religious establishment. Today's text insists that their exclusive mood was misguided. God had more in store than preserving a small group of ethnically pure Hebrews. The prophet believed God had given him a different word. Thus says the Lord, maintain justice and do what is right, for soon my salvation will come and my deliverance be revealed. Years ago, my faith group, the denomination in which I was theologically trained and nurtured, taught an idea that has never quite left me. It is a concept included in a document called The Baptist Faith and Message and was adopted in 1963. In its first article on the scriptures, it concludes with the following words. The criterion by which the Bible is to be interpreted is Jesus Christ. Now, I happen to think that single sentence was the most important sentence of the entire document. It is important because it helps us address a situation such as we find today. What does the Bible say? As we look at the scriptures, we find a conflict of opinion between the characters of Isaiah and the characters of Ezra and Nehemiah. We try and determine how we should midrash or interpret the Bible when it seems to be presenting to us contradictions. It is easy to have sympathy and even admiration for the work of the Hebrew leaders, Ezra and Nehemiah. Their task was a difficult one. They responded in the way they felt was best. What they faced required decisive action. However, in the application of their good intents, did the nation of Israel go in a direction that took it off course? Jesus seemed to think so. I agree with Dr. Cartledge that Jesus backs the message of the prophet Isaiah. His message is one of justice, inclusion, and welcome. 
for all people. Isaiah's vision of God's justice foils against some of the policies and politics of Ezra and Nehemiah. Isaiah argues to not exclude the foreigner. He does not exclude the one who does not meet the purity or pedigree tests that were established by the returning exiles. If we are to apply the historic statement made by Baptists and traditionally embraced by many Christians of many denominations, then we must let Jesus speak midrash to the debate. Dr. Cartledge concluded his Bible study this week with these words. God's vision is more expansive than many want to recognize. The same God who had gathered the outcast of Israel by returning them from exile also declared, I will gather others to them beside those already gathered. Those who see the world as Jesus does understand that living out God's call isn't about deciding who's in and who's out. It's about being just and doing right by all people. Dr. Cartledge has it right. As followers of Jesus, we too must be concerned about justice in our own day and time. We, too, must advocate for those who are being treated unfairly and unequally. It is our calling to follow the one who offered God's grace for the entire world, the one who included the exiled and the sidelined, the marginalized and the discarded. When we read the portions of Scripture that speak of exclusion, we must set them within the criterion of Jesus who strongly embraced the words of the Hebrew prophet who said, do justice. Now more than ever, I am impressed by the American words that reflect the gospel. Hear them again. Ask yourself, do we still believe these ideas? From our founding document we read, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that all are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And the words of President Lincoln who said of our nation that we are a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. At the foot of the Statue of Liberty, these words have spoken in our behalf. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. Even the Pledge of Allegiance, so often repeated, concludes by saying, with liberty and justice for all. Now let me ask you sincerely, prayerfully, peacefully, do we as Christians who live in the United States of America still endorse these ideas? Do we hear them in the echoes of the Bible we read or of the prophet Isaiah and the Savior we follow? Do we view the outsider the marginalized and the outcast through the eyes of Jesus? If so, then now is the time we must speak out whenever and however injustice occurs. We must not shrink from our duty to God to love and care for others because he has loved and cared for us. Let these words of Isaiah ring in your head and heart. Do justice. Do justice. Do justice. Amen. For our prayerful moment today, I invite you to listen carefully as you lift a personal prayer to God. 
Pray for the victims of racial injustice. Pray for the refugee and the excluded. And pray for yourself if you struggle with your own feelings of rejection and abandonment. Sung by Dunn again, let God help the outcasts be our prayerful moment. <clears throat> I conclude this broadcast this week. I ask that you pray for all with broken hearts and dashed dreams. In a real way, I too feel outcast by events. I will so miss Dawn. My faith is going to get me through. 
your faith will get you through. God has given us a vision. I am concluding today with the words God gave me when I lost my first wife to cancer. They apply to me now in the loss of my heart, my second wife, Dawn. Maybe these words will help you today. No matter what you have done or become, promise to be, never forget that God made you, knows all about you, and loves you unconditionally. May his divine love change you from the inside out, and when it does, you will know what grace really is. Even more realize that this pervasive, persistent, and powerful force called grace is the best thing you will ever discover. And when it finds you, your eyes will be opened and you will see there's nothing but grace. For all of those like me who need to see grace today, I end with Be Thou My Vision, sung by Michael Card.